0: The abounding joy of New Testament hope. This will wrap up this series, part 18. Hope in God in the face of death. Hope in God in the face of death. Two texts I want to start with. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, so that's like right now, here. You live in this physical body. We are, we are away from the Lord. True, we worship Jesus. He's present in our midst where two or three are gathered in his name by his Holy Spirit. But you don't see Jesus here, like... Peter, Paul, and James did. He's away. We're here in these physical bodies and we're away from the Lord and he's going to come again. Come again makes no sense unless he's absent in a certain sense right now. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body. This is interesting. And at home with the Lord. This, obviously, is talking about the intermediate state. Because, eternally, when the body is raised, you will have a body again. He's talking about now, between the time you die and your body is raised, we are away from the body, but we're with the Lord. In other words, he's talking about what? Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. To die is gain. That's one of the clearest passages in the New Testament. It doesn't get used that way that often, which is surprising to me, because it certainly indicates something better than just a soul sleep or some kind of unconscious existence. He says, we'd, we'd rather be away from the body and with the Lord. It's better than the bodily life that you have now. My father, his body is in the New Market Cemetery, my dad. He's with Jesus. But according to this text, that's better than what he had before. It's not all that will be. But it's very good. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And in these words... Or we, and I want you to notice the way Paul includes himself. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here's another text I want to look at. Hebrews two, fourteen and 15. Therefore, since therefore the children, that's us, Share in flesh and blood. We live in, we're not disembodied spirits. We live in bodies with flesh and blood. He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. The same things is flesh and blood. That's the incarnation. That through death, Jesus died, he might destroy, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil... So that's one, two, and and then deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let's pray together. We, we, We feel we need to ask forgiveness for ever thinking of this as an ordinary moment that that the creator, the invisible creator and designer of the whole world and everything in it, including ourselves, the invisible designer and creator of the world has written to us. And we have the scriptures. We're reading words unlike any other. We're seeing truth bigger than any other. There's nothing ordinary about our Bibles. And so help us, Father, to treasure truth, hear your spirit, and change our lives. Thank you for speaking to us through the written word. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one. Man has eternity permanently fixed in his heart to cause him to hope in God alone. The Bible uh, teaches that what separates you from um, your, your poodle or, or whales or dolphins or chimpanzees is not mutations and chemicals but personhood in the image of God. So, so when you accept and understand this truth, you'll know... Why? There are times when you lie awake at night and you think about eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has put eternity into our hearts. It's in the heart of the atheist. It's in the heart of the agnostic. It's in the heart of every person that breathes. He has put eternity in the heart. That's why, by the way, that's why the fool is forced... To constantly tell himself there is no God. Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart. He has, to do, he has to do something with the eternity that's in his heart. And what he does is he goes, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. He has to constantly push that down. So the central thesis of this whole series of messages is, is when people lack hope. In the promise and the blessing of God, they don't just go into mental and moral hibernation. They begin to rely on the false hopes promised by immediate temptations, delights, and distractions. But that verse, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he's put eternity in their hearts. It it, it states that people created by God, they can't help but think about eternity. It's an unavoidable part of personhood that's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's a blessing if you know what the New Testament teaches about the real living person, Jesus Christ, God the Son. Our opening text says that he came and tasted and conquered death for those who live under his lordship. But the other side is, thinking about eternity is also a curse for millions of people. And that leads to point number two. The fear of death brings bondage into our lives. It's in, it's in, uh, it's in these words from Hebrews two fourteen and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver all those. This is the part we're thinking about. Deliver those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Those are interesting words, and I think they're easily misunderstood. The writer does not mean that these people live every minute, every minute of every hour, afraid they're going to die with their next breath. Most people don't fear death in that sense. Most normal people, at least, don't fear death in that sense. No one except maybe a a terminally ill no one lives every moment fearing death in that sense. And I, and I don't think that's what the writer means. I think there's a better way of interpreting those words. The text says there's a kind of uh, slavery. Some translations say bondage. There's a, there's a kind of bondage that people are held in because of the reality of death. It's not that they live each minute saying, oh no, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It isn't that. But rather, they, they fill their lives with a thousand things. We used to call it the rat race. They fill their lives with a thousand things to keep them from deeply pondering and facing the inevitable reality of the death they do have to face. What they're enslaved to isn't, oh no, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. What they're enslaved to is the thousand ways every day of their lives of avoiding the nagging fear that one day it all comes to an end. They're enslaved to the denial of death. And the effort required to hold this fear at bay is astronomical. Paul describes this treadmill of bondage 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty two. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So indeed, it's your only option. Eat, drink, buy, spend, invest, travel, see, play your brains out. Because tomorrow, and you can do nothing about this, it's all over. Billionaire pauper. It's exactly the same. So this is the bondage that the fear of death brings to those outside of Christ. Look at our world. People are hopelessly addicted to what they eat and drink and wear and buy and drive and live in and work at and invest in and play. The Bible says people are actually held in bondage by all of these pursuits. Addicted to not thinking about death. Bondage is the right word. So remember the topic. The topic of this whole series. The bondage to the ultimate trivial pursuit. This hope-killing bondage. It's what opens our souls to a thousand and one false hopes. It what, it's what locks us in, takes us hostage. A thousand and one competing distractions and pipe dreams. So in other words, the fear of death is it's a root sin in that it leads to bondage in all sorts of areas of life. It sets people on desperate, irrational, self-destructive chases for purpose and meaning. This is so important. Because we're not supposed to be there. More than anything, the fear of death and the bondage of attempting to avoid facing it, it opens up the life to the entrenching power of the devil. He knows desperate people when he sees them. He can spot those with a hunger for False hopes. As I feel my race against the clock, he offers a thousand false detours, shortcuts to joy and pleasure. He's a master of pulling false hopes out of the hat like a rabbit, the way a magician does it. Try this. Look at this. Watch this. I got this. Point number three. Jesus brings freedom from the fear of death and concentrates my energies on my hope in God. It's in the Hebrews 2:14 to 15 text. Let me just clean that up. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, he, might, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And, and then deliver. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's, it's easy to misread this text. The deliverance from bondage and fear of death. That's described as a result of Christ's incarnation and death. It isn't the deliverance we experience... At the time of our death. Okay, I I, I feel at peace, I'm gonna die. I mean that's beautiful, but that's not what the text is talking about. It's not a deliverance that we experience at the time of our death, it's a deliverance experienced right now, while we experience health and life. The deliverance is we are freed from the distracting power of all the false hopes to take our mind off of death. Or put it this way. We don't don't live life spending our energy dodging the reality of death. We don't have to anymore. Because of our hope in Christ's life-supplying redemption, we can focus our existence on accomplishing God's will rather than avoiding death. We are now free. We in this room. Here's the deliverance we have through Christ. We are now free to risk everything for the cause of Christ. Our lives have a deeper meaning than dodging the reality of our own death. So there's an application to this message. We just have to see it clearly. My ultimate security and safety through Christ in the face of death whenever that comes to Don Horbin. But the point is it's to have an immediate effect right now on the way I invest my life. The difference isn't merely that one day I die and go to heaven. The Bible says that this truth of my ultimate security and hope in Christ. It's to do something to the way I live right now, today, this week, this month. And the difference is this. Not only do I feel better about the fact that I have eternal life when I die. Praise God, by the way. But I am free, really free, to pursue the great things of God in this life. I am free, really free, to use my best strength, my best energy, my best time, my best resources to relish and delight in and extend the kingdom of God. I, I, I finally see what I'm supposed to be doing in view of the fact that I'm going to die. I see where my life is supposed to be directed. I'm freed from the rat race. So, well, it's easy for you, Pastor Don. We, We pay you to be holy and sit in church. I live in the real world. All those early disciples, those fishermen and tax collectors and accountants and carpenters, and computer whizzes and tech people and, and custodians and librarians and secretaries and VPs. You've been freed. You can take all that God has given you and you don't have to spend your energy trying not to think about death. And filling your life with a thousand and one trivial pursuits. The bondage is gone. You can live life for a greater purpose now. That's the kind of freedom that has been brought into your life. Through my hope in Christ Jesus, I am finally free to say no to all the deceitful promises of sin and materialism. I'm free through the power of hope in Jesus Christ to think long-term instead of short-term. I'm not running from my ultimate future. I'm racing toward it with joy. I am finally free not to set my affection on the things of this earth. I am finally free for the joy of the Lord to be my strength. I am finally free to be so unfettered by the things of this world that people begin to see my good deeds and actually glorify my Father who is in heaven instead of seeing a Christian who basically lives life the way they do but goes to church on Sunday. That'll get nothing. That'll get nothing. Because I really believe that my future is secure, I know that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. These bones will sing, great are you, Lord. I am free to live for Christ's kingdom because Jesus has already cared fully for all of my eternal needs. Here's a good test. Paul says we are saved. We are saved in this hope. Hope is tied to your salvation. So here's a pretty good test of where my hope is ultimately placed. Yours too. If I cherish Jesus Christ. If I cherish eternal life with him. If I cherish him. More than anything else, if I mean half the words that I sing in those worship choruses, then I live this whole life for the greater joy of my Lord. If deep in my heart Jesus Christ is only a backdoor escape from hell, if all my religion is kind of prepackaged by my parents or by my church, then whatever else my creed might be, I will live this whole life acting on the premise that life will only work as I secure my own fleeting happiness. My life will be a rat race. So I don't have to face death and eternity. So whatever my doctrinal beliefs, this life will be the place where I find my pleasure. Eternal values will be cashed in for earthly wealth and fame and success or revenge or lust or whatever will keep me from thinking about where this life is all going to ultimately end up. Because I hate thinking about that. Picture two skydivers, okay? Ron and Chris. Up they go. They've never done this before. They both jump from the same plane, 21,000 feet, trying to land on a small painted target back here on the big parking lot. They've buoyed each other up, encouraged each other, summoned all their courage, up they go, and both of them jump out at exactly the same time. Gravity means they're falling at exactly the same speed, both free fall without being tangled in any wires or cords. And each will have the opportunity to win $100,000 if he's closest to the target. In fact, everything's exactly the same except there's only one difference. As they jump from the plane, they're suddenly aware that only one has a parachute. Parachute. Here's my question. Which of those two has the greater opportunity and likelihood to actually focus on where he's supposed to land? The one with the parachute. There's no fear, right? And because, because, because that bondage to fear is gone, what Ron can do and what Chris can't do <laughs> is focus, he can focus on what this mission is all about, right? I mean, that's what, that's what happens when the bondage to fear of death is gone. You suddenly get to focus on what you're living for. Do you see the point there? When the bondage is gone, you get to focus on where you're going and what you're supposed to be doing. So in that very same way, our ultimate security, my hope in Christ, it's to have an immediate effect, not when I die, but now on my life. My life is undistracted by the terror of hitting the ground without a chute. My hope in Christ, it fixes my thoughts, my energies on the purpose of life in Christ. Not just the end of it. For there's a link between the fear of our inevitable death and the bondage to the power of sin. So, so Jesus came, the text says, and he dealt with two related enemies. Sin and death. That's what the text says. He he conquered sin on the cross. And he conquered death by his resurrection. And when Paul says believers now live, quotes in Christ, he says that over and over again. He means that those, those two victories are related in my daily experience right now. They aren't just truths that I happen to agree with. They aren't just doctrines. So so here's how the fear of death and bondage to sin, here's how they are interrelated and how both are dealt with by hope in Christ. Because the bondage of the fear of death has been broken in my life, I no longer need to be deceived by short-term distracting pleasures and promises of sin. We need, to, we need to take what I just said and think it through right down to the bottom. Christ has paid the penalty for all my sins. That means I, I no longer dread God's judgment for those sins when I die. So that's the way Christ delivers us from The bondage of the fear of death. So far, so good. I think we'd agree with that. Jesus paid it all. I won't be judged for those things. But there's more. Much, much more. Because I no longer fear my inevitable death, and because I embrace my future through Jesus Christ, I'm no longer desperate to escape the reality of my inevitable death with false hopes Sinful temptations, material pursuits and short-term distractions. So remember, all sin, all sin comes from false hope. That's a review in this whole series. All the devil wants to do is get you to place your hope in something other than God. That's all he has to do. He's a one-trick pony. That's what he does. No one sins out of duty. All sin offers an alternate to God for satisfaction. And nothing makes us long for joyful satisfaction in life or security for our future. Like the gnawing pangs of, can't stay here long, we're going to die, we're going to die. So point number five. What does hope, this is the last point, we're almost done. What does hope look like when it gets expressed in our very short earthly lives? I want to talk now about verses that give Christians a lot of trouble in terms of understanding what the Bible says. Here here are some verses that I want to close with. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-10 So we are always of good courage, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith. We don't see everything yet. Not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Why does He do this? We make it our aim to please Him. Why? Why? Well, He tells us. For, that means because, here's why we make it our aim to please Him. We must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one might receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And he includes himself in it. That's a troubling verse for a lot of people. One more. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I am coming soon. My recompense is with me to, to repay everyone, not just some people. Or what he has done. Does that trouble you a bit? Romans. Romans 2 5 to 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, people who hear the truth, hear the truth, don't respond. You are are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, see, Pastor Don, he's just talking about bad people and wrath. No, he's not. He will render to each one, according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. These aren't the bad people. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So you read those. I gave one, two, three texts, but I could have given you 15. So there's this time when all of us, Paul says we, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded for our deeds, good or bad. And there's something that we all wrestle with in verses like that. And here's here's why we wrestle with those verses. There are others, like Romans 6, 23, and Ephesians 2, 8. These ones we like a lot better, by the way. For the wages of sin is death, but the... This is lovely, isn't it? I like that. The free gift of God is eternal life. Or Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved, through faith... This is not of your own doing. It's, it's the gift of God. So, which is it? The issue confuses a lot of Christian people. What is the purpose of a judgment according to deeds if salvation isn't by works? How can works determine My eternal standing, if salvation is a free gift, and the Bible only gives one answer to that question, and it isn't confusing, but it's so ignored in the body. I don't mean this church, I mean the church, the global church, it's so ignored. By almost the entire church that millions of believers have a distorted picture of what faith in Jesus Christ actually is. And Christ's judgment of believers by deeds, it proves whether or not faith was real and genuine. It's not contradictory. And this judgment is essential because it's not professing faith in Jesus that saves me. Anybody can do that. It's possessing faith in Jesus that saves me. The deeds will be judged to show whether I had saving faith in my heart. It shouldn't surprise us. The whole New Testament resounds with really the same message. Are you all still with me? James, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead doesn't just mean it's not ideal. He means it's non-existent. There is no faith. That's why we're saved by faith. But judged by works. The works show whether or not real faith was actually ever there. So my deeds, my works, they accomplish two things at the judgment. First, My deeds will determine the reward for faithful service in God's kingdom. It matters how faithful we are. He who plants, he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. No one made this clearer, and this is the last text. No one made this clearer than Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears, whoever hears my word and believes. Now, everything else we're going to read is about that one word. Okay, we're going to read verses on two slides. But all of the, all of the words are simply there to explain what Jesus means when he uses that verb, believes. What does that mean? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life so lots at stake he does not come into judgment but has passed from death into life truly truly i say to you when he says come into judgment he's not going to he's not going to he's escaped hell damnation but has passed from death to life truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god And the dead that he means, you'll see on the next slide. This is a big, big thought, church. Up there in New Market Cemetery. It's probably in pretty rough shape right now. Lies the body of MPH, my dad. And what that text says is, one day... How deep are they? Ten feet down? Eight feet down? And there's, and there's a box, and then it's in concrete. You've seen them buried. And they're way down there. This text says that the body of MPH is going to hear that command. Have you have you like drilled right to the bottom and allowed this to soak into your soul? And they're going to hear. And they're going to be raised. The hour is coming and is now here. It's in Jesus. That's what he's saying. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Remember, he's talking about what this means. Belief. What belief is. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good works see to a resurrection of life those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment so what I'm saying is when Jesus talks about what belief is Here's what he talks about. Those who have done good. Well, is it belief or is it works? It's, it's, yes. Belief without works is what? It's deader than that corpse in the cemetery. So there's no conflict between those, all those references that talk about being judged by our works, rewarded for our labor, judged by our works. There's no conflict between those and that salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. It's given to those who believe. So the really important point is the way Jesus described people who believed in him, verse 24, and he describes them being judged by their deeds, 29. And that's because faith isn't just what you believe in your head. That's intellectual assent. Faith is... Here's how we wrap up this whole series, 18 weeks. Faith is setting your hope on God. It's not placing your hope in anything else. It's where you turn for delight and joy and purpose and life and security and meaning and in this preciously short life that we have. Faith is hope aimed at God. And because we've been delivered from that bondage, that lifelong bondage of filling our lives with everything we can think of to avoid thinking of death, because we've been delivered from that and our hope is in Christ, everything about our lives presently that people see it's Christ direct. It's Christ direct.